talking about feelings and where you're at, it's just not something that I was used to anyway, uh, regardless of football. And I'd be inside the road 100 metres from the football club half an hour before training and I'd be, in, I'd be in tears. People on the outside looking in, we still do this in every walk of life. You know, we think online, people got perfect lives and behind the scenes, players coming out talking about their mental health is, you know, I was, I was doing it really hard, <laughs> really tough. You don't drown by falling in the river. You drown by staying submerged in it. You can fall, you can dive, you can backflip, you can do however you like in the river, uh, but continue to stay strong, continue to stay hopeful. And uh, Something really successful and happy is around the corner. Welcome to the Seize the Yay podcast. Busy and happy are not the same thing. We too rarely question what makes the heart sing. We work, then we rest, but rarely we play and often don't realise there's more than one way. So this is a platform to hear and explore the stories of those who found lives they adore. The good, bad and ugly, the best and worst day will bear all the facets of seizing your yay. I'm Sarah Davidson, or Spoonful of Sarah, a lawyer turned fun entrepreneur who swapped the suits and heels to co-found Matcha Maiden and Matcha Milk Bar. Seize the Yay is a series of conversations on finding a life you love and exploring the self-doubt, challenge, joy and fulfilment along the way. Well, I think I've held up pretty well so far on the show. It's really not easy to leave me speechless or babbling, but this week's guest cracked me. I'm always so impressed and inspired by everyone's self-awareness, reflection and honesty in these chats, but Jake Edwards is just on another level. A quick heads up, this is a little heavier than usual and we do touch on suicide in the context of Jake's incredibly inspiring recovery. A conversation about yay in any depth has to acknowledge not only the joyful side but how severe the challenges can be for some among us. You've likely realised I'm an advocate for open, albeit difficult, conversations around mental health to help us normalise it and continue to spread awareness about the support available, helpful strategies and how you can absolutely still find Find your yay, Jake's story being the perfect example. I always marvel at the timing of the universe, and it's so perfect that this one worked out just when we're all facing challenges to our routine and structure, so probably need it most. I usually would do a more detailed intro, but I think Jake tells his story so well, especially with the added layer now of later reflection with hindsight, a lot of work, and brutal honesty with himself. For some quick context, though, he followed his father, grandfather and great-grandfather into the AFL, but faced a mental health spiral after being delisted and losing the only identity he'd ever cultivated for himself. You'll hear about the depths of rock bottom that he hit, but from which he has since built himself back up to found Outside the Locker Room, his incredible charity providing critical mental health education and welfare support to community sporting clubs around Australia. He's also co-founded Speak Clothing that you'll hear about in the show. It's also no surprise to me that Jake is an Australian Mental Health Prize nominee in recognition of his amazing work. I've known Jake for a few years and am as moved now as I was the first time I heard this. His is a truly incredible story that I hope you gain as much from as I did. Jakey, welcome to the show. I'm Mrs. Davidson. Ah! How Still are not you? Used to it. It's so weird. Uh, I'll be preparing my intro and I thought, no, 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 it's Mrs. Davidson. Hello, <laughs> anymore. How are you? Good? I'm well, thank you. Thank you so, so much for joining us. I'm so excited for this chat. You are one of those people that just is a shining light out there. I follow everything you do and you're doing such amazing work and I can't wait to share it with everyone. Oh, thank you. I really appreciate that. And same 
with you. Incredible. All the work you're doing, it's great. See you on TV now and <laughs> it's quite cool, isn't it? <laughs> well, before we get into it, first question really is I think especially for people like you who are providing such important support for everyone else, people forget to ask you how you're going. So how are you? How are you coping? How's day-to-day going at the moment? Yeah, I guess if you had asked me that six weeks ago, completely different answer. I think we all find ourselves in a really <laughs> challenging environment right now and I'm certainly not immune to that. And uh, we'll touch on a little bit later on, but I've obviously experienced mental health issues and I still have depression today and it's even challenging more in some ways. But in also the other ways, I feel that in some preparation for our isolated moments we are today. So I don't feel a sense of discomfort. I don't feel a sense of kind of anxiety, I guess, because perhaps I've been living it quite uh, quite a while. So it is challenging. Work has been really important mm. and I'm sure we'll touch on that a little bit later on as well as the work that we're doing, but I'm doing okay. How are you? I'm glad and yeah, definitely want to touch on the work you're doing. I think it's so important to raise awareness of everything you're doing and everything that your industry is facing at the moment. Um, but yeah, I'm really good. Thank you. I'm the same as you actually I think when you've had to do a lot of the work for your mental health and dealt with you know anxiety and depression you I I think have a lot more tools even if we've never faced this exact situation before you're a little bit more aware of what your brain needs what how you react to change and, and, and different stimulus and I feel very grateful that I had done a lot of work on myself before getting to a place where you just have to sit with your own thoughts. I think a lot of people have been thrown into never having done that before and then suddenly sort of being like, oh, my God, who am I when I'm not busy? Yeah, Um, play AFL and being delisted from an AFL club, uh, you lose that routine and structure, which is something I've experienced quite harshly in a traumatic way. So today is really kind of common ground for me. And that's where I don't feel a sense of, um, yeah, you know, scarcity with where we're at, but I know that a lot of people out there listening uh, are certainly going through it quite tough, which is um, I can be very empathetic with. Yeah, for sure. And I think um, one of the things that has helped me a lot is also being quite familiar with a gratitude practice. It's not a weird thing for me to do that. I've been doing it already for so long. So remembering to wake up and think about, obviously, there's all the things that people have lost and, and income and opportunities, but also we've got our bodies, we've got, most of us have family, we've got roofs over our heads, you know, the sun is shining today. There are still so many things to be, small things to be grateful for. That's been keeping me. Um, Definitely. I actually had a phone conversation yesterday with Brent Webb. Remember Brent Webb who was one of the survivors in the Tasmanian mine? Yeah. Oh my gosh. Yeah. yeah. So he's going to come on and do some work with us. And anyway, I figured who would know isolation better than Brent Webb. And the conversation I had with him yesterday was as simple as, hey, you know, we had air, lights and uh, each other. Mm. Uh, and that's what they needed. They relied on for 14 days underground and they weren't sure they were going to make it out. So yeah, extremely grounding conversation and it makes you, dove, makes you uh, be a bit more grateful, I guess. And it also really made me realize how it's so simple to keep yourself happy. Like I realize how much excess there is normally and how little you actually need when you come back to, you know, the simple things. It's really, it's been actually quite nice. Yeah, it has been lovely. I think a lot of people are taking stock. I think everyone's looking at what they really need uh, and the impact of things around them that they thought they needed, which they generally might not need. So, and I think workplaces now moving forward are going to get a sense of what it actually 
means to support employees and offer different opportunities for them to work within their workplace. So yeah. uh, you got, you got to look at the optimistic side of things and the benefit of perhaps where we're at. Yeah, I think there will be many silver linings coming out uh, over the next couple of months, maybe even years. But back to your story, before we get into the first section, Way TA, which is all the stuff that comes before the moment where most people walk into your journey and encounter you now, forgetting that there's you know, a whole lifetime before that. But before we get in, the very first question I ask everyone as a little icebreaker is what is the most down-to-earth thing about you? Most down-to-earth thing about me? It's definitely music. I'm an absolute music buff. Uh, I play instruments um, and I listened in preparation for this uh, interview. I did my research and by research, I mean sit in the car and listen to, uh, and what an intro you've got, by the way. It's fantastic. I really (laughs) love it. Uh, So, it's one of those jingles you keep playing in your head all day, so it gets stuck in there. But I listen to a friend of ours, Michael Ramsey, who um, who plays the piano, and I know that he's uh, he's a good man, Rams, and uh, I'm very similar. So I play guitar, drums, bass. Uh, it's something that I just really need in my life almost every day. There's some form of whether it's in the background, I'm tapping away. Uh, music for me is quite grounding. It's my go-to number one strategy with my mental health when it comes to yeah, just feeling a bit more relief and de-stressing yeah, and managing my anxiety. So music is certainly my thing. Oh my gosh. I did not say so that. I love these conversations for this reason. I can have known someone for so long and we've known each other for years. I had no idea you love music. I love finding out things that you know, uh, just about the person when they're just at home being themselves. That's it. And I think music for me is more the the lyrical side of things. So if I like a song, I'll research it. So I'll read obviously the lyrics and what it means and then research the, the artist, the singer, and try and put yourself in that position of that person writing the music. Um, it brings a different element to it. It's the many songs out there you hear for generations and you learn the meaning behind the song and then you listen to it again and it just changes your different perception on that on that song. So Music for me uh, is certainly, yeah, my number one grounding thing, I'd say. Oh, that's so cool. You know, it's so funny you said about lyrics. It's one of those things where nowadays sometimes I'll find myself like humming to a song, like a throwback from the, you know, late 90s, early 2000s and think, oh, my God, like I'll process the lyrics for the first time and realise that at 10 or 12 or however, however old I was when I was first singing those words, it's all about like, smacking my bitch up or like some kind of like <laughs> terrible lyrics that when I was younger and singing it I had no idea and now I'm like oh my god <laughs> it's so true uh, I listen to more kind of heavy metal music uh, so generally you can't kind of hear what they say because they scream their lyrics but for me that look most of the days with my mental health being my depression let's say I walk around most day with a bit of a feeling in my chest that I can't communicate and for me, I can't walk down the street and scream, right? Because people think you're crazy. Yeah. So for me, listening to music in that in my own little bubble, it helps me release that internally, which is beneficial for my own mind health and everyone around me. So I can understand that different point of timing when you hear music mm. impact it. I think that's another thing that's so down to earth about you is just how open you are and have been about your mental health journey. And I, I can't wait to get into that because talking about it and normalizing these conversations is really what's going to get us moving forward and helping more and more people to take the stigma away. Mm. So let's jump into how you got there. Take us back to the very, very beginning. So young Jake, I'm talking like early, early childhood. What were you like? I read that you said once if you were to give blood, there'd be little footies like swimming around in it. (laughs) I mean, I I also can't believe that you had 
your dad, your grandfather and your great-grandfather all played AFL. So, yeah, I can imagine growing up in a footy family that took up a lot of your childhood. Certainly. So literally when I say I give blood, footy's floating around, I actually genuinely mean it. I uh, So my great-grandfather, my grandfather, my father, my cousin all played well over 100 games, AFL, VFL football, uh, premierships, everything you dream to become as an AFL player or footballer in general. So I grew up in country Victoria on a small farm, uh, two older brothers. As a kid, I was pretty... Pretty humble, very grounding. My old man was quite quite tough, you know, really old school type of character. He grew up even further country, Victoria, up on the Murray River. Uh, and his father, my grandfather, was was just as hard. That real old school type of mentality towards toughness and you know, soft being soft and all those type of things we grew up with. And he was just trying to be the best father that he possibly could at the time. I mean, at the age of kind of 12, 13, 14, when he'd kind of have those I guess, parental clashes at times when you're so young and you think mm. you know everything. Uh, my father and I really <laughs> clashed, you know, and uh, for him and I, it was about my footy career was the one thing that we connected with the most. But having said that, I'd play a game of football and my dad would be like, and I'd say, you know, I'd kick two goals and dad would be like, yeah, but you missed three, you know. So there was always that external expectation to be better and do more. And I always used to think, geez, is he ever going to be happy? You know, I always spent a lot of my teenage life trying to impress my father. And on top of that, he was quite, he was, he was really hard on us growing up in the way of, you know, chores around the house wasn't a little five by 10 meter, you know, um, mower. It was pushing a hand mower for a kilometer around the farm. <laughs> it was quite brutal at times. So, but having said that, it taught a lot of good values in me at a young age around her work ethic and how you got to, you know, work for things and nothing gets given to you. And ultimately there's a result at the end of it. So young, I was a normal kid. I was pretty good at school. I got along really well with the, you know, the nerdy kids, if you call it that. And then I was really kind of cool because of football, because of the jock side of things. And then I'd be in the music room at lunchtime playing in a band that I played in at school. So <laughs> I kind of had a three kind of, um, I guess, approach uh, to my teenage life. But I was very normal, uh, but football was certainly the big thing and the one thing that I wanted to become was an AFL player. Yeah, I always wonder when you have that kind of legacy and lineage in AFL, do you ever indulge any other option? Like when you were at school, did you ever think about anything else or was it always like, no, it's going to be footy and I'm just biding my time at school until I can get out and, and get in the draft? Yeah, I certainly wasn't terrible at school. I was, I was okay. I wasn't a naughty kid or anything like that. I got, once again, my teachers kind of got along with me. I, I never had any really issues, but I was never going to be an accountant. I was never going to be like someone really magical with numbers or, and sport for me was my escape. Uh, it was one thing that I loved and I just happened to be pretty good at it. Yeah, I didn't really have any plan B. Yeah. Uh, it was football or that's kind of really it. I was actually pretty good at cricket. So I had to pick between football and cricket at the age of 17. Uh, and so 16, my father came into my bedroom one day and my dad's a plumber too, yeah. So to add to the stereotype of my father, he's he's got that tradey kind of feel. He's got the biggest forearms and hands you've ever seen in your life. <laughs> he walked into my bedroom. He's like, mate, you got to pick between footy and cricket. You got to, you know, your mum's driving you everywhere. And I said, look, dad, I'll have a think about it and I'll get back to you. And I was always going to pick footy uh, because cricket was something I did in the summer. But I, once again, I was all right at it. So as he went to walk out, he stopped at my door and he turned around and he looked at me, points at me and he goes to me, you know the family history in footy, don't you? It's a bit, of a, a bit of a sly kind of, you know, you better pick football. And from that moment on, yeah, I was always going to pick footies. I was fortunate enough to be drafted four weeks out of my year 12, which if I wasn't drafted, then I don't know what I would have done, to be honest with you. 
Yeah, it's so interesting that you didn't have a plan B. I I always love investigating that kind of late high school, early first years in the workforce and just asking people what they actually thought that would become because a lot of people do have, they either have no idea what they're going to be and there's like a million different options or there's one option and no other possibility. And I kind of love seeing that contrast of what your brain must have gone through at the time. And it's funny, I've been like that my whole life. It's just been kind of blinkers on and that's what I want and it's just going to happen. It's just a matter of time. So it's, yeah, I've carried that into my personal, professional life for sure. But I love that as well because I'm the total opposite. I've always kind of been juggling a million balls because I'm so indecisive and I'm like, I'll do anything. So I love hearing those stories when people are like, no, I knew. I just knew and I put my head down. I didn't indulge any other option and I just did it. I love that. When did you, just before draft camp, when did you actually move from the country town? Because I know you went to school in Melton and then Essendon. So did you move to Melbourne? Was that jarring as a country kid to move to the city? Was that four footy to be closer to Melbourne or what was that move like? Yeah, it was. So I was drafted in 2005. So back then you could be picked up as a 17 year old, which is a bottom age recruit. Basically, clubs will get in early before the next year's 18-year-old where you'd get drafted earlier. So clubs would see something in you, they'd pick you up as a bit of a security for you moving forward. Uh, and my old man just said to me, he goes, righto, mate, off you go. So basically kicked me out and uh, I moved into into Melbourne. And so early on when I was drafted before, so November draft time zone uh, was about four, six-week period before I actually turned 18. So uh, I was still at home at that point. And I was getting, my mum was driving me into training or we're getting the old cab charges from home back into the football club and back. And uh, and then I got my license at 18 and that's when I moved out of home. So I moved into Mooney Ponds and yeah, it was for footy and you just hit the ground running and, and off we went. So it was all exciting. It was very, very exciting time. And uh, the day I was drafted, it was, yeah, it was something I'll never ever forget and very proud of it uh, to extend the name in uh, in football with my pedigree and my heritage and become the fifth player in my family to play league footy was certainly something that not many families or and not really anyone I feel in the, in the um, industry has done. Oh my God. When I was reading about it, I was like, who even knows who their great grandfather is? Like that's just so many generations ago. That's so cool. And I also love reading that uh, your dad, like my, it's, I don't look at obviously, but you know, I'm adopted. My whole family are like country bumpkins, small rural AFL families. Like I was on the MCC list before I had a name (laughs) and um, my dad was the same. Like if I was a boy, I was absolutely playing footy or cricket. Like there were no options. (laughs) So, I mean, imagine back then, what was it like then going in with that amount of pressure on yourself from your family from everyone else thinking oh this is the fifth guy in the line like how how was your career uh, early on I certainly got a lot more attention uh from media and that because there's more narrative behind it mm-hmm. it was the family and my father and everyone before me all played over 100 games so for me my achievement in football getting drafted was one but the next step was 100 games was nothing less could happen uh, so that was my kind of ceiling as to where I wanted to get as an AFL player. And uh, it, it, was, it, was, it was tough, Sarah. It was really, really hard. Um, I was 17, 18 at the time and these feelings of anxiety and stress and that there was nothing spoken about. We never really knew much about emotional intelligence or anything like that coming through high school or especially coming into an industry where it's male dominated and mm. you're walking around the club rooms of blokes that you've watched on TV and idolized your whole life. So Talking about feelings and where you're at, it's just not something that I was used to anyway, uh, regardless of football. So, but early on, there was a lot more attention on it. Uh, but I was excited too. I was, it was fun. It was uplifting. I was living my dream, you know, and I had a 
pretty good um a pretty good football club that I walked into in terms of the, the playing group and so forth. So I felt very welcome. But uh, yeah, things changed pretty quickly after that. Yeah, so it was around your second year at Carlton, right, when you started to notice really your mental health issues start to kind of manifest as symptoms. Do you think it's something that you'd always had and you only started to notice it then under pressure? Or do you think that that was sort of when it really did come out for the first time? And what was it, what was it like? How did, how did you start to notice? Yeah, so looking back now, I can see at times when I was young, I, I certainly had moments of where I did have symptoms around anxiety and stress, but I always figured that that was just part of participation sport. Uh, so before games of footy, I'd get really sick and really nervous. Um, mm-hmm. but, and that kind of built it into my life after that. So I always attach it to playing footy. You know, this is what it's just like to become an AFL player or play football. So I kind of quickly brushed it aside and thought to myself, you know, well, if the Chris Judds of the world who I was playing with and uh, Brendan Favola's of the world and that, surely they go through this. So I just got to suck it up and deal with it. Um, so the end of my second year is when it all just became too much and it got to the point uh, where, you know, I was crying in the end of my bed most mornings. I had these manic anxiety attacks where I'd leave the house. So what most men do is rather than communicating through feelings and, and language, we, we do it through anger, frustration. It's very physical, which would cause me to kind of, you know, crack the shits and jump in the car and then drive off the training. And I built myself up so much of these, of these really critical um, anxiety attacks to the point where I couldn't hold the steering wheel in my car anymore. And I'd be on the side of the road because my hands uh, couldn't close. So I'd have like, like T-Rex and my muscles would freeze up and I'd be on the side of the road 100 metres from the football club half an hour before training and I'd be, in, I'd be in tears and I didn't know why and I was scared, I was frustrated and I always had my voice of my father in my head and my, my family saying things like, you know, Jake, you know, stop being soft and you know, harden up and get on with it, mate. You know, you're just being a being sook. And then I just convinced myself uh, to get off the training and before I'd walk into the football club, I'd make like a mask motion with my hands and put it over my face and then it gave me some kind of courage, you know, and some kind of identity that I couldn't let those people I mentioned before, like the judge of the world and that, see that I'm, I'm battling and I'm crying in a car park uh, before, before training. So I didn't realise it at the time. I thought I was just dealing with my own emotions, but I never knew it was symptoms of depression, anxiety, um, to the point where at the end of my second year, it all just come to a big end, uh, a big moment. And I actually quit AFL footy. I, I went back home to the farm and I sat around the table with my father, my mum, and a guy named Rod Ashman, who's an ex-Carlton champion. And I just, I was in a moment where I had to communicate to my family because I never, I didn't know what was going on because uh, I just quit footy. So my father was my biggest influence in my life, but also very intimidating. Mm. He was sitting next to me and I'm thinking to myself, if I tell him what I'm, what's going on, if I tell him I'm crying and things like that, he's just going to give me a whack on the head and tell me to stop being soft. And anyway, so he handled it very differently and he moved his chair closer to me, put his arm around me and just said, mate, you know, what's going on? You've just quit AFL footy. And that was just a huge relief. Just by him doing that, I was in a safe environment. Uh, I just started talking, you know, and it wasn't letting him know everything. It was just little bits and pieces and they just ask more questions, and then I start crying. My, my father starts crying. Uh, first time I'd seen that up to that point. Mm. My mum, she's lost it. She's blowing her eyes out. It gave me encouragement to go back to the football club after that, and actually um, 
I was diagnosed with uh, depression. And while all this was going on, I, I was playing AFL football. So my first game uh, was in front of 80,000 people at the MCG uh, against Richmond and people on the outside looking in. We still do this in every walk of life. You know, we think online people got perfect lives and fit mm. and healthy and this and that. And then yet behind the scenes as athletes, as we see more so ever than we do today, players coming out talking about their mental health is, you know, I was, I was doing it really hard, really tough, uh, especially in that, uh, in that year of football. And yeah, people would look at me being young, fit and healthy, but behind the scenes, uh, I was struggling. And football was great playing because these issues weren't happening. So I was focused on footy. I was loving it. I was enjoying myself. But then after once football training was gone or the games were gone, I'd go back home and then it would just get worse and worse yeah. as that year kind of went on. So uh, yeah, I found myself in that moment and fortunate enough, I, I opened up at that time, but I wish I had done a lot earlier, that, that's for sure, and actually got support a lot sooner before it got to a real critical point. Gosh, I oh, there's so many things in that. Firstly, that culturally we've come such a long way to now talking so openly about, I mean, we've still got a long way to go, but like thinking of young Jake and internalizing all those feelings of that other people are going to think you're soft or that you're going to get, you know, disparaged for feeling what you're feeling. Like that just horrifies me to think that anyone would choose not to seek help because of pride, because of expectation, because of, you know, macho-ness or even for myself when I started to get symptoms of, you know, same, really bad anxiety and really bad depression. In a, in the legal context, it's, it's a bit different, but still everything in your life ticks all the boxes and you're even harder on yourself because you think I've got it made, like I should be happy. So I'm not going to tell anyone because what a failure I would be if I came out and said, even though everything's outwardly perfect, it's not. And there must be so many other people out there like you who have been through that period of not feeling like they could tell anyone. It just oh gives me gives me the shivers. Yeah, you're right. And certainly, uh, I remember at times looking at my life on a bit of paper. I just signed a contract on one hundred eighty thousand dollars a year as a twenty year old. Mm. Uh, so I had finances were fine. I just bought a house with a partner I had at the time. I got two older brothers who were great role models. I had great family. Mum and dad are still together. Um, so I had no excuse around me to really point fingers at something and say, that's the problem. That's the cause. Yeah. I was playing in front of, like I said, 80,000 people and I was living my dream, but behind the scenes I was broken. And uh, it was something I really was petrified and talking about because I didn't want to lose all those things. I attached my my feelings and my my expressions to football and sport. And if I didn't have that, God forbid, where where would I be? What would I do? I didn't have any identity outside of that jumper. Yeah, uh, I took that jumper off. I didn't know who I was, and that was a big part of my learning mm. growing up. Uh, and then once I left my footy career uh, as well. So, yeah, it's certainly um, high performing environments, and even the legal fraternity, uh, Sarah yourself, it's, it's a very high performing environment. And when you start off, it's tough. It's hard. You get all the really difficult long hour jobs. Uh, and it's in a lot of industries, there's a lot of correlation between elite sport people and high performing professions. And uh, I can certainly understand and resonate with how perhaps you experienced that at such a, mm. a young age. I also think one of the things I've learned and, and you might have felt the same is that now with all the work we've been able to do and talking to experts, getting help and uh, doing more research, I think I used to think of mental health problems as why, like what is it because of? If all the things in my life are going well, what's the trigger? And what I've learned to understand and be okay with is that 
it's a chemical imbalance in your brain. It's just like any other condition, like someone who has a heart problem because of the chemical interactions in their body. It doesn't have to be because of something. Like sometimes people don't admit they have a problem or can't acknowledge they do, so they don't go and get help because they think, well, everything's fine. I couldn't be anxious. I couldn't have depression. But mm. sometimes it's it's just a chemical reaction. It's got It's not about what your life is doing around you. Some of my worst periods have been when externally everything's going the best and some of my most resilient happy periods have been when things are going outwardly the worst it doesn't have to be directly related to what your life is doing it's just your brain that's right and that's what we talk about destigmatizing and normalizing the conversation with mental health because i think at some point in our lifetime all of us experience some form of mental health issue and whether that's anxiety stress depression uh, we can all resonate at some stage and everything you've just spoken about then is perfectly right. I mean, you focus on areas uh, such as hydration, sleep, nutrition, movement, these things we can have really high in our lives, but we can still at the end of the day put our head on the pillow and not feel right. Mm. Uh, and that's when you make that point around it is a chemical imbalance and that's something that a lot of the time we, we can't control. Um, and there are things we can control, but still at the end of the day, it can become quite tough. So that's why these conversations and, and using a platform like yours to encourage your listeners to, hey, say, yeah, tick all those great areas of your life in, the, in those boxes. But if you're still feeling really, really down, get off and talk to someone. There's something more going on. And seeing a psychologist, I had a chat before to a mate of mine who spoke about his own mental health and his depression. It's like, it's like going to the doctor and, and feeling like you've got a broken arm and them x-raying it and there's nothing there and they're telling you that there's no break but you know and feel that it's a break there and you keep going back and they keep telling you it's not so mm. it's no different to any physical injury but internally that's hard for some people to really understand yeah absolutely I, I remember there are times where I know that I was having a really really bad time and I look at photos from back then and I'm like you wouldn't have any idea I look exactly the same on the outside and it's hard to treat it seriously when you can't see any impact and I think that is the problem is a lot of us if I had you know a, a heart problem and I got told I needed to medicate I wouldn't go nah I'm not going to I'm just going to live with how shit it is like you you wouldn't even question it no. and yet when our brain needs a bit of help we're really reluctant for some reason I don't know where that's come from but I think it's so important yeah. to like push that analogy out because that's how how silly it is to not nurture it and give it what it needs when when you are having a bit of a tough time. That's it. Spot on. I couldn't have said it any better myself and I'm in the industry for <laughs> So, uh, <laughs> well, you're exactly right, mate. And look, it comes down to we know that statistically we know that more men are successful in their attempt of suicide, uh, but more women actually attempt their lives more than men. So, we do know that it's not necessarily a gender-specific thing, but we know that um, with people in Australia, suicide is a leading cause of death. And we know that earlier intervention and identifying what we've just spoken about is really important for people to to reach out, get some help, drop your ego, get over your pride, and which is generally where a lot of men sit. Uh, it's a cultural thing this country has had for generations uh, we're getting a lot better but we do have a long way to go so we hope that your listeners who are listening um, can really take on some advice for themselves if needed but also to encourage their friends and family to um, to talk about their feelings I, I think one of the other things that I like to remind people as well in normalizing it is that I mean you and I both have had quite serious anxiety and depression but still live really happy fulfilled joyful lives it's not a hundred percent crippling condition you can learn to manage it if you do a, a bit of work and and get some strategies but it's I think at, one, at some point you know 
I look back at where I was at the beginning and you really think you're never going to get through it and you're never going to be normal again and you're never going to have a great time or be happy or smile. But you can get through it. You can manage it. It just becomes, yeah, like a physical injury. You just manage it and, and you get through and you figure out how to be yourself again. Yeah, and I, I think just on that, I think it's about the narrative with mental health and sharing stories of hope. It's like I've been there. I know I get it and I went through it. And what helped me get to that sustainable change is seeing someone and like when I worked in my, I went, I was in a rehab program working with my psychiatrist. It saved my life mm. and it's the best thing that's ever happened to me. And learning what I learned working with him, the things that I implemented in my day day to day today. Um, and I live just a happier life, like you said, more than anyone else listening to this podcast is, um, yeah, I do wake up sometimes. I don't want to answer my phone. I don't want to go to work. And these days do happen, but I've learned to earlier identify and mm. implement those changes. I've learned, through my clinical team with my psychiatrist and bounce back sooner uh, and get back to some normal living, which would be considered mentally fit in, uh, in our way. I mean, this is when I just want to give you such a big hug to think how what a journey you've been on and how far you've come. And I think you did have like a four-year spiral before there was intervention, before you went and got help and could see how much you could benefit from that or even break that cycle. Yeah. And I think a lot of people get into that spiral and I would love to help, you know, either help people listening who can help someone else who they can see in that spiral or help someone who can feel themselves in that spot. What happened in that four years and how did it get to rock bottom? And then how did you, how did you even decide to go to rehab? Who helped you make that decision and how did you get from there to now? Yeah, it's a it's a terrific question. We probably don't have enough time with the podcast. <laughs> However, the 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 real kind of straight to the point answer is that when I when I left my AFL career and it wasn't on my terms, so I, I was what we know to be delisted, and I was told when I left the Carlton Football Club, I went and had an opportunity at the Western Bulldogs where I trained, and I was promised that I'd be redrafted, and it didn't happen. And the very next day is generally where for me, I lacked responsibility. I lacked care and I actually hated the world. I didn't want, because I associated so much, as I said earlier, to football and that football jumper. Once my name wasn't called out to be an AFL footballer anymore, I didn't know who I was. And the one thing I knew really well, as I mentioned earlier, I do put the blinkers on in everything in my life and I'm, I'm an all or nothing type of character, but that not necessarily means it's always with good stuff. Um, <laughs> Generally, what that meant for me at that time was closing off the books in terms of family connection, friends, running away, not wanting to be around anyone. I felt like I let family down. So I only played five AFL games, which is great. I get that now. But at the time, it was 95 short of what I wanted to achieve. And that family attachment was embarrassing for me. So when I left the game, I left really bitter and really angry. And alcohol was my way to suppress and my way to go out and party and Everyone around me would have thought, Jake's fine. He's trying to find his feet. He's just partying a little bit too much too often. He'll be fine. And and generally during the week, I, I portrayed that facade too. So I had some work here and doing things there. And I always perceived everyone that, hey, I'm fine. Everything's great. Uh, and then, but behind the scenes, it just got worse and worse and worse. The partying become more frequent, uh, which ultimately led me down drug abuse. I uh, started using recreationally quite heavily, quite often. And then ultimately that led me to a point in my life where it's what we call triggers in the industry. So the, the stresses such as financial stresses, relationships, things like that. And for me, I had a breakdown in a, in a relationship and a partner I was with at the time really kind of got hold of how bad I was in terms of the alcohol and the drug abuse. And then off the back of that, 
she walked out of my life. She, I come home one night after a couple of nights being away, like being out and then come home. She had her bags packed. She walked straight past me. Still to this very day, I've never heard anything from her. And I remember I walked in, I sat on my couch and I was in a really bad way. I'd pushed family and friends away. And I just remember having these real serious thoughts around taking my life and what that meant and how it might shape everyone's else, everyone else's life around me. And I went out for the next four days and I partied straight and I didn't sleep. And I had all the alcohol and, and drugs in my system. And then I come home on a Monday morning and yeah, I, I found myself in my bathroom and I just really had these real clear, precise thoughts around how everyone else could really move on. And uh, for me, it was just looking in the mirror and as confronting as it sounds for your listeners, we do know that talking about suicide doesn't create more of it. It's the reason I talk about it so openly is because it seemed to be very selfish and I can understand that for at least a family's broken and people get left behind families, young families at times. And but for me, it was about the most selfless thing I could do because I felt like I was a burden. I felt like that, you know, I was a mess. I knew that I was in a really bad place and I thought that my family could just move on without me. I'm very fortunate to still be here and I committed to the act um, physically and emotionally I'm very fortunate to um, to get the opportunity to immediately straight after the attempt, my phone had rang and I was on the bathroom floor and I looked at my phone and it said DAD on the screen. It was my, it was my dad. Uh, you've all learned the story of my father. Uh, so he's the last person who would ever call me at any time at that point in my life and I answered it. And it's probably the one thing that single-handedly probably saved my life. Uh, I didn't realize this, but about an hour before my attempt, my mum had called me. And apparently I spoke to my mum on the phone and I gave her the same bullshit excuse that most men give their families and their friends and their partners that I'm fine, I'm okay, I'll talk to you tomorrow. And that was basically the extent of the conversation and it could have been the last conversation I had with my mum uh, with those words and uh, it wasn't without effort. So off the back of that, uh, my, my mum said to my father, Butch or Alan, his name is, call your son because something's not right. And then that's when he called me in that moment. So 30 seconds before... Uh, it could have been a very, very different story. So mm. off the back of that, mum and dad came in from the farm and picked me up from where I was, took me home. I spent a couple of days on the farm just kind of coming down from the weekend and what I'd gone through. And off the back of that, I went in to see a lady by the name of Dr. Maddie Clements, who was a psychologist at the AFLPA, who I'd worked with during my career. And she's the only one I wanted to talk to because she knew my background and she knew everything about me. And I remember I sat down and answer your question here as to what kind of got me into that program and what motivated me to get change uh, was when I was sitting in that office with Dr. Clements and she was sitting across from me. Um, I had my head in my hands and I remember I was crying hysterically. Like those, you know, those really hard, loud cries that we have sometimes and it's obviously traumatic. And she got her phone out and she put it on loudspeaker and she called my mum. And she says to my mum on loudspeaker, she goes, Lynn, I'm with Jake. Uh, before we send him back home to the farm, I need to know that he doesn't have any access to any firearms so Jake can't come home and shoot himself. And what I heard through the phone was maybe I've kind of emphasised this a bit over my journey, but I could hear like a lump through my mum's mom, uh, throat through the phone. And then all of a sudden it just, it just smacked me square in the face and I've just realised that this thing that I call depression, it's going gonna, it's gonna to kill me uh, if I don't actually get some help. Uh, I could count on that one hand amount of games of football that my mum has not been to in my entire career 
and that's juniors right up until senior football and I just putting him through all this pain and I'd never seen it right up until that moment in my life so I was fortunate to hit rock bottom in order to kind of redesign myself and recreate who I who I was off the back of that and Dr. Clemens put me into a program in Dandenong St. John of God where I worked with a guy named Dr. Brendan Murphy he's a psychiatrist he's a sports psychiatrist um, and I worked with him Mm. Uh, it wasn't an in program so I'd go in a few days a week um, but I was spending time at the farm the whole time but it went for about eight months and yeah once I said like I said earlier it's the one thing that I rely on on a daily basis all that stuff I learned with him over that over that period and the biggest thing he taught me actually during that time, I always I thought that I was like the whole kind of negative connotation of like a rehab type of thing is around drugs and alcohol, but mm. it wasn't about that at all. And he walked in the first day and he goes, mate, we're not here to figure out your drug and alcohol use. So I really fell off my chair. What are you talking about? Uh, he said, mate, we're here to figure out why you feel like you need to use it, mm. you know, in your life. And, and that for me was a really groundbreaking moment where there was actually more directive to my mind health and my depression, which I neglected. Even being diagnosed with it back when I was 20 years of age, all I heard from my doctor at that time, the Carlton Footy Club, was pop a pill every day, mate, you'll be fine. Yeah. I didn't ask any questions about it. What is it? How does it work? You know, what's a medication, you know, Bifex and stuff like that. And uh, one of the byproducts of medication I was on, I uh, was actually putting on weight. It's very common. Uh, as an AFL player, that's like a, a big no. <laughs> So I actually stopped taking medication and at that time it was either take medication, put on weight or what we had at the club at the time was a thing called fat club and it was on the wall for everyone to see on the wall. If you were above a certain percentage of skin folds, you were put up on the wall for everyone to see and you weren't off that wall until you worked hard enough to reduce the skin folds. So therefore you're out of fat club. So I'm thinking I'm, not going to take the medication because I'm not going to humiliate myself on top of what I've been diagnosed with and have further effects to my mind health. So I stopped using medication and I didn't realize it until that time of my psychiatrist, just how damaging that actually was. And yeah, he got me back on the straight and narrow and I'm very, very fortunate to uh, have had that opportunity. But I mean, I had great, I got great family. Um, I'm, I was broke. I had 45 cents to my name. I had no money. Mm. And my mum and dad are in a position fortunate enough to financially support me through that process. And yeah, I found my feet uh, after that. So I'm very grateful for that. Oh my God, Jake, I've heard this story before. And it just every time I hear it, oh, I, I just want to cry. Like it, it, I'm so, so inspired and impressed and moved by how far you've come since then it's such and and how openly you share parts of your life that are still a little stigmatized uh probably very painful very private and that you've been able to come back from really I mean when people say they've hit rock bottom there's all different kinds it's all relative but I mean objectively I think you probably right there in smack bang in the middle of it and to bring yourself back and find a purpose from all that not just in your own journey I think it would have been more than enough if you just got on with it and lived a normal life Uh, people would think that that was more than a big enough achievement but to turn it around and to now be impacting hundreds and thousands of people who do face the same problems and challenges that you had to try and change a a sport-wide culture you are incredible I just, I'm so impressed. So, so impressed. Um, 
it means it means a lot. It really does because uh, I, I look at people like yourself, and I I'm the traditional down the street punter on social media, and everything you've achieved in your life is just in, fantastic, and I, I admire that as well. So hearing that from you means a lot to me um, as well. So thank you. Oh, Jake, honestly, like particularly knowing, I mean, I didn't get it as severely as you, but having had quite severe panic attack disorder, anxiety, being through all the different phases, knowing how you must have felt and to be who you are now is just extraordinary. It's a lot to have to fight your own brain, but to do it and do it in such an incredibly transformative way now with outside the locker room is just amazing. So please do tell us how you've been able to rebuild and and help i mean tell us who you who you're helping and what you're doing it's in, incredible you know what uh we're nearly six years into the charity organization and it blows my mind so essentially when i come out of the the program and feeling like i found some normality back in my life and having some better structure routine and that was a, a lengthy process to get to that point I realized a couple of things. I, I realized that I had a lot of money one day and I also realized that I had absolutely no money. So on the no money thing, there was a time when I was walking into cash converters, selling Xbox games and flat screen TV to get money. Mm. Uh, so it got to a really, really difficult point. So I realized that at this stage, after everything that had happened, um, I'm not motivated by money at all, completely not. And I, working with the really important people in my life, the next thing was around, okay, well, what do you love? And I was more worried about not having a beer. So um, that was a big question to have to answer. <laughs> I was fortunate enough during my time at Carlton where I actually volunteered to work with the Juvenile Justice Centre uh, for an organisation called White Lion, which was my first taste of mentoring. I and, saw that. Yeah, through that program there, I actually went out to Malmesbury and coached the football team up there. So the young um, adults up there who were transitioning from youth prison into adult prison. Uh, on more on more serious charges, so you know, manslaughter, murder, mm. assault, and things like that. And so I, I got a really great sense of youth and the impact that me as an athlete could have on these people's lives. I also did some research around mental health at that time, and I just I was blown away by how common that it actually is. And the statistics around it five years ago uh, were just mind blowing. And having played local football at that time, I just went back to my local football club to get back into sport. I had an example at my footy club of a couple of people who had some issues uh, with their own personal lives. And the mum and dads who run our local sporting clubs that are volunteers who are more worried about, you know, the canteen on the weekend and filling water bottles and the trainer and the strapper, then they're not, they didn't have anywhere to go when it came to support. So there was no number they could call or a website they could jump on and say, can I get some help? This is what's going on. A lifeline beyond blue who all do terrific stuff that we do work with, but there was nothing niche and there was nothing speaking to that market. So that's where the ideas of outside locker room kind of started, uh, started breeding. And one thing I learned very, very quickly is what I call the athletic blueprint is one thing that we know very well is dedication, hard work, commitment, work ethic, and you get that into one area, laser-like focus, things happen very, very quickly, whether that's in a really good way, as I mentioned before, it can be a really, really negative way. But as a locker room for me actually grew, come to life very, very quickly uh, because I spent 24 hours on it and I was dedicated and I was committed. And within six months, I started working uh, in country Victoria, about 14 sporting clubs. And what it was was me going out, sharing some stories, but also giving some education around you know, mental health, leadership, things like that. 
And those 14 clubs slowly grew. Uh, next thing you know, I went to kind of 30, 40, maybe the next year. And then it just got to a point where sporting clubs everywhere were hearing about the program that I was running. At that time, it was only me running the program. And I thought, I can't be everywhere and doing everything. Uh, and there's a need for this all around Australia, if not the world. Uh, how do I scale this? Like, I, I possibly can't because the demand coming through was quite a lot. And then to add to that demand, what happened next is I went on 60 Minutes. Uh, so they reached out to me um, and they said, look, do you want to come on? I'm like, who's going to say no to that, right? And I had no idea of the impact it was going to have. And then, yeah, that went on TV. And then within the next 48 hours or something like 340 requests through the website from sporting clubs, either sharing stories, wanting to get help, um, wanting me to come out and uh, mentor their, their kids. So off the back of that, it was kind of, okay, we need to move quickly to scale this program up. So I was fortunate enough to bring in some really important people uh, to help me grow that. So people that have achieved success in their lives, in business and organizations, who helped me identify how to do that very early. Mind you, I had no idea how to run a business and arguably I still probably don't. <laughs> but the one thing that I think I, yeah, one thing I do really well uh, is I'm passionate about what I do and I'm extremely passionate about people and relationships. And for me, that's only what's got us to this point. And over the last four years, outside of the locker room, it's, it's generically grown uh, off, the, off the back of the work that we do. So essentially now we've, we've rolled out across nearly 300 sporting clubs around Australia, uh, schools now as well, where I won some, we won some federal funding, what was it, 12 months ago now for Western Australia for four years, which is just over uh, $2 million, which is you know, exceptional for us. Uh, it's a, it makes huge change. That'll be 400 sporting clubs and 200 schools over four years over there. Oh, my God. Uh, we've got funding for New South Wales and Queensland and hopefully now Victoria is the next one. So we're working our way to the top. <laughs> but as you know, with that becomes uh, more expectation. Uh, with that comes more responsibility. And that's an area of my development as a business operator, let's say, that uh, I've, I've really embraced but really struggled with as well uh, because I'm more of a founder, entrepreneur type of approach to life. Um, we went basically from three people working in the charity in 12 months now. We've got 12 uh, in the matter of 10 months. So uh, <laughs> it scares the living hell out of me. Um, and fortunate enough, we have an exceptional team. I've been really lucky to attract the right people got a general manager who basically runs everything. Uh, we've got an exceptional team underneath her who do incredible work in, in the space. So essentially what we are, we're a welfare and education program. We offer a free platform for sporting club participants to reach out and get help. And we have a welfare team, so it's counsellors, psychologists that are part of our network that offer that free care plan and that conversation around their mind health or drugs, alcohol, gambling, whatever the welfare issue might be. Our role is actually to connect them with local services so and then mentor that process and guide those steps, uh, which is generally the, the thing that's missing in a lot of people's lives. Yeah. And then the, edu the education part of it is we do two visits per sporting club and school per year, which is all around preventative education, how to identify signs, how to approach conversation, how to support your friends moving forward or family members. Uh, and that's been received really, really well uh, in the sporting clubs in the community. So... Yeah, it's just grown and grown and it's going to continue to grow and grow because in Victoria alone, um, there's about 1,300 football clubs 
uh, and we work with all codes. Across Australia, there's about nearly 7,000 sporting clubs around Australia, and we only work with, what I say, 280, 300 of them. So on the scheme of, on the, you know, the scheme of things, we're only very touching the surface of actually what I believe should be available, made available to every sporting club across the country. Well, it must be so surreal and satisfying to look around and know that what is out there already, you've just made such a huge impact. You are like really spearheading the movement to make that available from pretty much nothing. And and I think so many things come out of your story. Firstly, it's very easy for us to get to kind of lament the times, I think it's it would have been really easy for you to get bogged down in being angry at how the culture was when you came through and angry that, you know, kids now have access to these resources you didn't, how different could things have been. It's very easy for us to tell ourselves stories about the past and get, and get angry about how different things could be. But I love that you just, you don't dwell on that. You've gone straight to action. How can I change that? How can I fill that gap? Who cares that the culture was different then? I don't. It wasn't right or wrong. It was a different time. Now I'm going to just do what I can to change it. I love that you've gone to start small and then get bigger and any impact that you make is a good impact and you'll grow into it. And, and also just like at any one time in your life, you'd never know when you're going to stumble upon your purpose and what you're passionate about. And I imagine that 10 years ago, you would never imagined ever that this is where you'd be. You can hit rock bottom, but at any time in your life, you can decide to clean the slate and start again. And look what you've done. Yeah, and I'm at 16, 17, all I want to do is play AFL, right? Um, and if I were to write a list down now, my top 10 achievable things in my life to this point at 32 years of age, you know, running out of the MCG in front of 80,000 people would be at the bottom of that 10. Yeah. Um, I mean, the charity is my baby. That's my thing. and That's my legacy. And the reason I started it was for the purpose. But for me now, it's about leaving something behind because I'm not, I don't kid anyone on my own effect thinking that I'm going to be involved in this for the rest of my life. My leadership and my capability will hit a ceiling uh, and we're going to have to get new people in with new energy, new motivation, new ideas, new experience to take it to the next level. Um, and as a founder, no one can ever take this away from me. Yeah. I'll always be a part of the board. I'll always be a part of its impact. But one thing I always thought was I love for my kids one day to look at their father and say, oh, daddy played footy. You know, it's great. But I really want them one day to look at our sort of locker room and say, wow, dad, you did that. And I'll be like, yeah, that was me. So for me, that has certainly been that inner drive for me. Well, what am I leaving behind? What is it that when people think about Jake Edwards, you Google me now, generally what comes up, drugs, alcohol, mental health, depression. And I feel like I'm so much more than that. I feel like that my legacy is outweighing any of that stuff. And I hope that once all this is kind of, you know, I move on from here that it can, and it will continue to grow, but I'm certainly remembered for more community impact and changing people's lives because I don't want a kid anywhere, adult, young, old, whoever, to go through what I went through because it was it, it nearly took my life mm. and it was really, really hard. And even when I'm talking about the last probably three or four years, what's really that I look back now, it, it, it really set me up resilient-wise for even things that I've been going through the last three years, um, you know, and a couple of those things where I was involved in, a, in an assault in the city one night uh, where it was my 100th VFL game uh, and basically got my nose broke, had staples in my head, unprovoked. I remember uh, that. Yeah, and it was just one of those things and it really set me back. Like 
massively in my mind in my mental health because it everyone around me so my, my loved ones at the time around me they could remember the whole incident and i couldn't remember a single thing and i felt like i'm the one who caused that and the trauma that they had in their lives the nightmares i was reliving that such a long period of time mm. uh, that i actually fell back a little bit but I, i've slowly got myself back up again through my experiences and then um, you know seven months ago i split with my fiance we we're due to get married at the end of last year and you can't prepare for things like that sometimes in life but I feel like that everything I went through certainly enabled me to stay focused, stay on top, stay in control and control what I can. Mm. And with outside the locker room, it's, I don't know. I, I like to think if I didn't have OTLR, I honestly don't know where I'd be. So it's probably saved me more than I feel like I'm saving others. Oh, I don't know about that, but <laughs> maybe a little bit of both. But I think you already if you if it all caved in today your legacy is already incredible for the work that you've done so far and even in the story before you even started outside the locker room but now with the impact you've been able to have on sporting clubs all over the country um, and growing every day and sharing the bits that are confronting and scary uh, so openly I, I know um, has had a huge impact on people and I, I'd love to hear that you are so self-aware, that you are aware that things might step, you know, cause you to go backwards. It's not always onwards and upwards. It can, you can take two steps forward, one step back. But I think the resilience and reflection that you've been able to develop as a skill is something that's obviously continuing to serve you through this time. Uh, you mentioned that you've got, you know, you've, you're looking ahead as well, that you might not always be at, at OTLR. What are the other things you've got going on? You've got a radio show, you're on TV. Tell us about the TV show. I'm not on your TV. It's more of an online TV, uh, but I'm working That's towards... That's still a TV. Towards, it's a new age TV. There's no doubt. It sounds good anyway. Yeah, so look, for me, my passion is, is in creativity. I, I love being creative. And one of the challenges I've faced over the last 12 months with growth within this organization uh, is the detail work you need to put into that. And as you know, there's a lot of that. I'm here most nights to 7, 8 p.m., uh, you know, working really hard. And it takes a toll and I actually get a lot of release out of creativity. So I try and dedicate some time every week to commit to that because uh, it makes mm. me feel like I can get back to that detail stuff, which is really, really draining and boring, but it <laughs> needs to be done. However, moving forward, I see myself uh, always being involved with the organization on board and always being a founder um, and possibly moving towards more of the relationships and partnerships side of things. One thing I generally do really well is get the money. Wow. <laughs> uh, because I can... Well, it's more the, the side of things of sharing the story people can really relate to and they really connect with. Mm. And because our work is evidence-based and it's impactual, um, people find it very easy, i.e. government, so forth, to get behind it because it's actually doing what we say it, it is doing. So I really enjoy building those relationships with people. But, um, yeah, the radio show and the TV thing, that's something that I literally once again thought about it four weeks ago and said, bugger it, let's just do it. So I've just I've gone out and bought all the equipment. So now our office in South Melbourne here has like a little radio studio and I'm very anal when it comes to trying to be the best at things um, <laughs> and trying to lead the way in a lot of areas. I Everyone's like, do a podcast. I'm like, no, I'm going to do a radio show. Like, you know what I mean? I'm very stubborn when it comes to things like that. I like um, it. Yeah, and it's kind of in ways it's scary because you lead what you go down the path of darkness and no one really knows what you're doing and it's generally how these things happen. But uh, it's 24-7, the radio show. You can listen to it on our website. People can tune in. Um, 
and every day there's a new segment. So we have everywhere from clinical interviews right through to everyday people telling stories right through to me doing my own segments around interviewing uh, ex-AFL players and things like that. Especially now with COVID-19, it was just a way for people to connect and relate and listen to something, hopefully bring up people's spirits. And the TV, online TV show is something that uh, Dipper and I, so for those who have <laughs> tragics might know who Dipper Oh, my God, I love Dipper. <laughs> he's an absolute legend, biggest heart uh, going around. And uh, him and I do a show every Thursday night at 6 p.m. You can jump on our Facebook and our YouTube page. It's on there. We'll be doing it. It's our third episode this week. So depending on when this podcast goes live, we're now 5th of May. And our third episode this week, we've, we get about 8,000 people viewing it um, every week. So it's uh, it's been That's a lot of amazing. fun. That's amazing. Yeah, it's been a lot of fun. And the goal eventually is I think I'd like to get into more hosting media, mm. stuff like that. But mm. it's a very difficult industry, as, as you know, Sarah. Oh, but you're so good at it. I feel like all you need to do is put that out there. Now you've put it out to the universe. Yeah. Just manifest it. Maybe someone listening will give you a call shortly after this. <laughs> yeah, you know, well, I'm available. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, I might be a bit ambitious expecting that this segment has an answer, but we've kind of gone through NATA, which is all the stuff that gets in the way of your joy. But play TA is the last one where really we unravel, and you mentioned it before, we unravel the part of your identity that isn't really tied up to your doing, to your productive self, to, that's your working self, that's always, you know, having output and achieving and being perfect. And it, it's, you mentioned when you finished AFL, it's really hard to unwrap yourself from the identity you think is your identity and to get back in touch with like, what do I like? What do I love? What am I passionate about? And what do I enjoy? I don't see where you have any spare time to do anything other than what you're doing as work. <laughs> and because you're passionate about it so much, I, I know it will probably be hard to, to make time for play, but what do you do just for joy? Do you do anything that's just for play that's not learning or achieving or, you know, succeeding at? It's just doing? Yeah, I do a couple of things. And reverting back to the music for me, that's absolutely yeah. my outlet. So one thing I've actually just got into this week's my second week of it is actually writing music. Um, <gasps> yeah, so one of my, uh, a friend of mine who I've connected with over the last maybe couple months, she is a pianist in a band called Make Them Suffer, which is a more of a metal, hardcore Australian band. And her and a friend, uh, Asha, his name is, have set up this thing called Sonic Minds. And what it is, is that you can basically work with them via Zoom, as we're doing now, um, <laughs> and you give them what you want. So I'm giving them lyrics. So I, I write music lyrically and I give them uh, the words and they help you structure a song. So for example, if someone's got a birthday coming up or an anniversary or anything like that, you can write the words down, you can give it to them and then they'll help actually make it into an actual song. So that's something at the moment I'm really, really enjoying. And it's something that I want to see doing more of. And that's absolutely an escape because it's a new skill. I'm playing instruments is fine, but actually structuring a song is, is very different. And then also just staying fit. Um, I'm 32 years of age. It gets harder as you get older. <laughs> and Don't even talk to I me about and, it. Right. It's fucked. <laughs> it's one of those, you know, we're in South Melbourne, old parks just down the road. Uh, try and get around there two, three days a week. Uh, but you got to find the time. you got to dedicate the time to it. Mm. Uh, and that's probably where I lack some discipline with that. Uh, I have highly prioritized my work in all areas most of the time in my life. Uh, but as I get older, a little bit more free time here and there, I dedicate that uh, more so than other areas perhaps. But definitely uh, the music thing for me is a really, really big one. And 
I just really want this COVID thing to go away. I'm sick of it. <laughs> yeah. Not in, in the gym. <laughs> well, I was going to say before we move to the last two questions, given that it is COVID, I think it is particularly hard for people to keep up with the routines and rituals that really help them keep their mental health in check. I know I've had a, a big struggle with not being able to do what I normally would do. So do you have any tips given that it's probably going to keep going for a little bit longer for people to manage their mental health or to look out for the mental health of the people they're living with or they're around at this time? Yeah, it's a really great question at this time. What we know is statistically wise, what kind of concerns me is what we're doing that's strongly impacting our mental health, if not now, but it will at some point in the next couple of months. And what I mean by that is alcohol purchasing has gone up 86% over the last two months. And what we see online now, people are fulfilling time. Oh, let's, have, let's get drunk, let's do this and play drinking games. So it's not necessarily we don't know what not to do to support our mind health. It's what we're doing, which is actually becoming more detrimental to our mental health during this time. So please be very well aware of your own personal alcohol intake and your friends around you, obviously, as well. Uh, you see them posting more online. Uh, it's certainly a sign of how we cope in isolation is generally a resort to alcoholism, which once again is very Australian of us. <laughs> and we know that online bullying has gone up 33% because people have got more time on their oh. devices. People can have opinions commenting and stuff. So that's having a lot of big impact on people's mental health as well. So be very mindful, please, um, of what you're commenting on and what you're saying online because it's going to have a, an impact an impact later on mm. and domestic violence has gone up uh, a third in terms of the calls into the centers and so forth as well and there are actually some centers that are having to prioritize more serious ones but still neglecting you know quite serious cases to yeah. approach the ones that are coming in so it is a really difficult time so the best advice that i can give is that um, the routine and structure I feel is really, really important. Uh, a lot of people are working from home, try and set your home up in a, your office in an environment where it's kind of quiet. You don't have any distractions like the kitchen. If you've got kids, it's very, very hard. I understand that. I don't have children. <laughs> but trying to give a, a good a routine structure as you can, try and get up at the same time, dedicate movement to your day. So getting out, going for a walk, going for a run, getting a sweat up is really, really important because no one ever left the gym saying, oh, I wish I didn't do that. Did they, Sarah? <laughs> Never. <laughs> just doing a thousand burpees or you do a strong session or something like that. <laughs> you just got to really focus on the basics. Sleep. I find people right now are really seeing the effects of that inconsistency of routine where it's impacting their sleeps. A lot more screen times impacting their sleep. So really bring it back to basics. Screen time, uh, food and nutrition, eating the right foods at the right time and movement. Mm. So really, really basic. And hydration. I mean, they're really simple, simple things. Uh, but what we do as general adults is we forget the most basic things. I know. Yeah. So, Do you meditate? Uh, no. I, you know what? It, I get asked that quite a lot. Given the industry I'm in, people must think I must be like a meditation master. Yeah. I was like, are you a guru? No, I'm certainly not. I, I, I find it very difficult to do. Yeah. But having said that, I must admit that I, I need to commit to it. And if I committed to it, I could probably achieve it. But music's my meditation. Yeah. And for me, what I, what I feel the definition of meditation is being able to be present and be able to be isolated with your own thoughts and be comfortable with that. And music kind of gives me that feeling. Totally. Meditation can be moving. It doesn't have to be sitting there and being a, a Zen, you know, Buddha. <laughs> so second last question, just to finish up, I could talk to you for hours, but I feel like I should let you go. <laughs> what are the three interesting things about you that don't normally come up in conversation? Particularly as I imagine you get asked a lot of the same stuff 
about your experience and your journey and people forget to ask you about all the other random stuff in your life like do you snore do you have allergies do you have pet peeves fun party tricks well i i, I did have and i miss uh quite a lot i had uh two mini lop rabbits as pets and bunnies. <laughs> i know right they're absolutely adorable pets and they're beautiful little things if anyone's looking to adopt anything uh, we generally jump to cats or dogs but please jump on there's a place called the rabbit orphanage uh oh and they God. it's it's a non-for-profit and you jump and they're, they're called mini lops that's a type of rabbit and they're, they're, they're beautiful little things and I'm, i've been a big advocate for their work and donate and support the stuff that they do so that's one thing that kind of comes up in conversation which i cop, cop a lot of flack for from my my guy that is so random <laughs> I love it though. Uh, what else is there that's kind of, uh, you know what? It's, I'm really, I am trying to keep a really kind of straight line when it comes to my nine to five living. And outside of that, uh, I don't really do too much outside of everything I've mentioned. Um, sorry to be really boring there, but no, no, I yeah, love it's it. Kind of, um, if it's if it's not work, it's music. If it's not music, I'm eating. If it's not eating, I'm I'm working out. If it's not working out, I'm sleeping. <laughs> I mean, that sounds like a great recipe. Simple is good. You could tell me what what do you eat? Like, what are your five things that you have to have in the house for food? Um, steak. Yep. Yeah. So sorry to all you vegan listeners out there. <laughs> I did try vegan for three months. Uh, and I actually, I felt okay, but I found somewhat quite negative effects for me personally, but that's perhaps another conversation uh, down the track. Um, <laughs> generally my go-to is, is kind of things like, you know, anything meat-wise or barbecue kind of stuff, but very country kind of farmy type of meals, wholehearted farmy. kind of things, They're farmy type of things, uh, you know, your, your tunas, your rices, your fish, uh, all that type of stuff. And I don't go to the supermarket and have really kind of needs. I just get everything and nice. then bring it home. There's nothing I don't eat. What I don't eat is chili uh, and coriander. What else is there? That's about it. Those two things I just cannot go near. That's interesting. Yeah. Wow. Do you watch TV? Do you watch Netflix? I, I do. I do. And that's probably one thing I do in downtime. Oh, that relieves me. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, I'm into a couple of series. One, the Michael Jordan thing at the moment is exceptional. Oh. The Last Dance. I think it's – I grew up – So mom. good. On Amazon. I think I've got all the platforms. I've got Netflix. I've got Amazon. Same. Disney. I've got them all. But Amazon has a doco series called All or Nothing. And what it is, they go inside change rooms of sporting clubs and cultures. So they've got different series. Uh, it's a series of different episodes of – of different codes. So there's the All Blacks rugby union team. I just watched the Arizona Cardinals um, as well. So I'm really much into that sports series documentary mm. stuff, which I really enjoy. Oh, amazing. Oh, I'm very relieved that you watch TV as well. I'm like, he's just too high achieving. Like, watch some TV already. You know? <laughs> oh, <no>. <laughs> <laughs> TV in there. Uh, I find it relaxing sitting on the couch. I find it very deproductive and it's yeah. very good. Yeah, I find that for my anxiety, like I need to binge on stuff that's totally unrelated to work or anything intellectual. Otherwise, I just freak out. Yeah, I can yeah. Since I love quotes so much, what's your favourite quote? You know what? Because before this interview, you told me to think about my favourite quote um, and I, I, I never really had one. However, it's funny how the universe works. I watched a movie on the weekend uh, called Extraction, <gasps> just Chris Hemsworth. We just watched Phenomenal. it. And I really enjoyed it. And this one thing in the movie, a quote was read out by the young man he was saving and the quote is, you don't drown by falling in the river. You drown by staying submerged in it. And I heard that and for some reason, I don't know what it was, coming on the podcast, you asking me that question, but 
I have to really kind of say that that's my favorite quote. It's a bit cheating on the <laughs> question, but it's I love it. It's great. I absolutely believe that quotes, people, events, everything comes into your life exactly when you need it at the right time. It will conspire to get into your face somehow. Yeah. And that such a good one. It really Especially is. Especially for your journey. Yeah, and it makes complete sense. Like I've fallen in the river so many times. It's ridiculous. And one thing I'm, I think I've done really well, I haven't stayed submerged in it. So hence the complete attachment to that quote. And it's encouragement for us all, isn't it? Listening to the podcast and just making sure that, hey, you can fall, you can dive, you can backflip, you can do however you like into the river, <laughs> uh, but continue to stay strong, continue to stay hopeful, uh, optimistic. Uh, something really successful and happy is around the corner. That is exactly what you represent for me, Jake. Thank you so, so much for sharing so openly and for all the incredible work you do for being just, yeah, such a shining light in society. Uh, you're welcome, mate. Thanks for having me. If anyone out there is struggling themselves, please reach out and speak to someone close to them. Uh, or I'm sure you might mention this on the, out, on the app bit around Lifeline and other websites that are tremendously available. Yeah, I will. I'll pop all the links and I'll also uh, make sure to get links from you for how we can support OTLR as well. That'd be great. You still got your hoodies? Yeah, I got Speak. Yeah. So I didn't mention that. It's another thing. I've got another clothing label called Speak. Um, a new one? Yeah. So, well, it's the same one, but we had to pause it because my business partner, unfortunately, his, his partner, his wife um, got diagnosed with brain cancer and she's going through oh, cancer. God. So I had to really focus on him supporting her mm. uh, and I was going through the breakup uh, with my partner so we had to pause it for four or five months and yeah we've got new stock in new hoodies and everything so it all go up online uh, the next couple of weeks so just speak clothing it's about a message again around mental health it's more of a philanthropic thing for me I want to be able to, to raise money and then give it to people personally um, and we'll see where that goes it's another creative thing that I enjoy oh amazing well do flick us the link when whenever it goes live and we can share it with all the listeners I feel like you'll have a lot of new fans after today you've been amazing thank you so much thanks Sarah I feel so privileged to be able to have important conversations like these and I truly believe Jake is changing more lives than he could imagine. First and foremost, if any of you find yourself struggling in any way, please take this story as a reminder to seek help and I'll pop a list of resources for you in the show notes for Lifeline, Beyond Blue and Outside the Locker Room itself. If you are as moved by Jake's story as I am and as grateful for his openness in the support of crucial conversations, please do share this and tag him him at jake underscore edwards underscore official and check out his work including his show tonight with dipper or any of the coming thursdays i'm sure he'd love to hear any of your reflections or questions from this chat please make sure you all look after your little brains this week and every week to follow especially during these challenging upheavals to our day today i hope this has helped reveal and explore another facet to seizing your yay and helps you on your way